So this is Srimad Bhagavatam, 4th Canto, Chapter 16, Text 27, Praise of King Prithu by the Professional Reciters. Oh, 26. Whoops. I'm still infallible. So, Prabhupada's translation for this verse. Um, I'm just going to read the translation, then I'm going to explain the words in depth, the individual words. In this way, when the chivalrous activities of King Prithu come to be known to the people in general, King Prithu will always hear about himself and his uniquely powerful activities. Uh, to artificially advertise, oh, the Prabhupada's purport. To artificially advertise oneself and thus enjoy a so-called reputation is a kind of conceit. Prithu Maharaj was famous amongst the people because of his chivalrous activities he did not have to advertise himself artificially one's factual reputation cannot be covered so uh so let's take a look at this so the first line is tatra tatra, which literally means there and there. Or Rabba translates it here and there. It means everywhere. Tatra tatra. That throughout the world. Tatra tatra. Giras. Tas tap. Giras means voices or words, speeches, and so on. Tas ta. So the repetition of tatra tatra and tas ta means it's all over the place. It's it's an, it's not simply in one place, or you know, it's not that Prithu had his political base somewhere and people liked him, but uh, everywhere you go, tatra tatra, and and varieties of praise. Iti, and so iti. Uh, in Sanskrit, is, it means it's translated thus. It also is used as the quotation marks in Sanskrit. So, um, so iti means because of that fact, because of the fact that his glories are being heard everywhere or will be heard everywhere. Therefore, he is called Vishuddha Vikramaha. So that grammatically, Vishuddha Vikrama. Here refers to King Prithu himself, because the top line, all those words, Gidas and Tasta, are the feminine plural in Sanskrit. Those grammar lovers out there. Uh, that's the uh, feminine plural, so Gidas goes with Tasta, and then Vishuddha uh, Vikrama is a masculine singular, which refers to Prithu, whose name will be given at the beginning of the last line. So Iti, because of the fact that his glories uh, will be heard everywhere, and all, many different glories, therefore he is called Vishuddha Vikrama. So V in Sanskrit is the opposite. It's a little handy little prefix, V, which is the opposite of some. Some means together, like Sankirtan. And V means apart, the opposite of some. Uh, sung, by the way, we still have in English through the Greek, 
The Greeks spelled S-A-M as S-Y-N, which they pronounce soon. Some, and we have it in words like synthetic, synthesis. Synthesis means the together thesis, or symbiotic means when biological things are working together. So the Sanskrit S-Y-N or S-Y-M, according to English, Sunday actually, symbi, anyway. I could explain all kinds of things here about Sanskrit grammar and how it even is reflected even Sunday in English, but maybe rather than make this a Sanskrit grammar class, we better get back to the verse. So, so the opposite of some together is V, which we still have. Uh, for example, in Italian, if someone wants to say get away, they say via, via, which means away, which is what it means in Sanskrit. So because, because V is the opposite of some, it has various meanings. So that V, for example, can indicate something which is categorical. In other words, not all merged together, but separated categorically. And because it means away, it can also mean away in the sense of off the real point, like not where it's supposed to be, but it can, in the sense of deviation, as in, for example, vikarma. So vikarma means karma, which is deviant in the sense that it goes away from the real point. So in that sense, uh, V has different meanings. And here, uh, it has another common sense of V uh, is away or separate in the sense of uh, wide, widespread. It's not simply one place, but it, 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 uh, it expands. And, and you find that use of V, for example, very prominently in chapter seven and 10 of Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna talks about his vibhutis. In fact, chapter 10 in the Gita. In, in chapter seven, you find some verses in chapter 10, most of the chapter, which, in which Krishna describes his glories. For example, of mountains, I'm in Malayas, of warriors, I am, of the Pandavas, I'm Arjuna, and so on. And so, um, so Krishna calls all these glories where he identifies himself in a certain ontological sense with the best item of all these major categories of existence. And Krishna summarized this, actually, if you read chapter 10, before Krishna gives this list, and then afterward, in conclusion, he says, what I'm going to tell you, and then at the end of the chapter, what I just told you was my vibhutis. And so bhu in Sanskrit is the verb to be, and bhuti is just a simple word meaning being or existence. In Sanskrit, you can form feminine nouns from verbal roots by adding T, T-I, as in shruti, bhakti, smriti, and in this case, bhuti. So vibhuti means existence that expands. Remember, sun means tall together, and v means separate, which can also mean the sense of expansion. And so vibhuti, Krishna's vibhuti means the expansion of his existence, how he expands his existence into many different spiritual and material objects. And that's why all those identity verses where Krishna identifies himself with so many things in the Gita uh, is called the Vibhuti Yoga chapter because Krishna himself calls all these glories as Vibhutis. So it's that sense of V which we have here in this verse. That's why I did all that. I just gave you the scenic, the scenic drive there. And so here we have the word um, shruta. Shruta, of course, is a simple Sanskrit, past passive participle, which means heard, that which is heard. And so 
V, Vishruta means that which is heard widely. And that's why uh, the word Vishruta or Vishruti can mean literally heard widely or can simply mean glory, sometimes translated as glories. Prabhupada translates it as V, chivalrous activities. But literally, Vishruta, another very well-known um, use of V as expansion in the sense of uh, greatness is, of course, in the famous name of Krishna, Trivikrama, which in Western Sanskrit is Trivikram, which you may have heard. Anyway, so Tri, of course, means three, and because Krishna took three wide steps, he's called Trivikrama. Krama means step. Trivikrama. That's where that name comes from. So it's in that sense of V, as in the word Vibhuti or Vikrama. Uh, for example, in Mahabharata, if you read the Mahabharata in Sanskrit, uh, one of the ways when, let's say, when Dronacharya, not Drona, I'm sorry, uh, Karna, is trying to convince Duryodhana to stop being so sneaky and just go out and fight like a man. And so he tells uh Duryodhana, Bikrama, in other words, step wide, like step out, be a man. That's kind of Sanskrit for man up. Anyway, <laughs> so here in this line, V Shuta V Krama, the word, the, pre, the uh, preposition, V is used twice in that same way. V Shuta, because his V Krama, literally his wide steps or his bold actions, uh, are vishuta, are heard widely. In other words, they're famous. That's a, that's a common way in Sanskrit of saying that something is famous. It's vishuta, heard widely. So his vikrama, his wide steps, his bold, or Prabhupada says, his chivalrous actions are vishuta, widely heard. And the reason that his vikramas, his wide steps, his bold actions are widely heard is because the the, the speeches about it, or the talking about it, the kiras, tatra tatra is all over the place, and tasta, various glories. So, because of that fact, that this verse is proceeding logically, because of the first line, second line is true, and because of the second line, the third line is true. And what the third line says is, shoshatyat maashrita gata, that Prithu himself will hear. Shoshati. Shoshiti is just the third person singular future tense of the verb to hear, true, which is Shoshiti, he will hear, literally he will hear. Um, he will hear all these things, Atma Shita Gata, he will hear songs or speeches or Prabhupada translates Gata here, narrations, songs or narrations, uh, which Atma Shita, Thank you. So, uh, Atma means himself, because uh, Atma can mean, it's just like in, in English, the self, in serious philosophical discourse can mean the self, the spiritual self, or it can just be the reflexive pronoun, like in self, a self-service car wash. So if they, if, if they had a self-service chariot wash in ancient India, it would be called uh, Atma Seva, self-service. <laughs> so the, the word Atma is used like that in Sanskrit. 
And here we have ashrita. Ashrita means like sheltered, like ashraya can mean shelter in the sense of holding on to something. But in that sense, it can also simply mean related to something. In other words, something which is connected to or linked to something else. So it can be used in the sense of sheltered, like you hold on to someone else, or it can simply mean something is linked to something else. And that's the sense we have here, Atmasrita, that he will hear these songs or these narrations which are about him. It's just a way in Sanskrit of saying it's, he will hear songs about himself, Atmasrita. And then, uh, Prithu, finally, the person, of course, we're talking about in line two and line three is Prithu, whose name means uh, wide in the sense of broad or, or expansive, immense. And if you make a feminine form of Prithu, as in Prithvi or Prithivi, of course, it means literally the wide earth. So the word Prithivi, uh, which, as you probably know, if you know anything about Indian languages, but the V means the earth and literally the wide earth, the wide earth or the great earth. And so that's just the, so Prithi V or Prithvi is simply the feminine form of Prithu. <clears throat> so um, Prithu, Prithu Parakrama. Oh, and you can stay if possible, just... Uh, I think we have a little, I'm just kidding, maybe it's a joke. Okay. So, um, just kidding. So, Parakrama, Prabhupada translates here as distinctly powerful. And again, we have the uh, Parakrama can, can be uh, grammatically, it can either be Parakrama or Paraakrama. But in, uh, in any case, it means like a great or supreme or transcendent or powerful step and also in English for example you can say we need to take serious steps here and so even in English the word step can mean a process or measures or uh, and, and, and so it's like that in Sanskrit uh, so krama can mean a step in the sense of measures or taking action so here because if you think if you, if you take like we need to take steps to do something it means we need to take action to do this, systematic action. And so in that sense, parakrama means, it, it's a, uh, interest, interestingly, the, uh, so having described Prithu as Vishuddha Vikrama, now he's described as Prithu Parakrama. There's all kinds of interesting poetic things going on here in this verse. The Bhagavatam is, uh, from any point, even from a so-called material point of view, a work of literary genius. Uh, so here you have, for example, Prithu here is a synonym of the prefix V. V means wide or expansive. That's what Prithu means. And so uh, he was called, uh, he said his, his actions were Vishruta, and now they're called Prithu Parakrama, which it's very interesting play on words here. So, because Parakrama, in a sense, can be synonymous, roughly synonymous with Vikrama, powerful, expansive steps, actions. So, all this is going on in this verse. It's very brilliantly composed. So, Tatra Tatra Girastasta Iti Bishuta Vikrama Shoshatyatma Shata Gata Prithu Prithu Parakrama. So, uh, 
I told you, I warned you I would really go over the word for word. So Prabhupada makes the point here that um, he's talking about reputation. And he's comparing a genuine fame to mere conceit. He's contrasting these two. So he says to artificially advertise oneself and thus enjoy a so-called reputation is a kind of conceit. So as we know, there are on this planet roughly 7 billion people who are trying to promote their own reputation. <laughs> and the number of people who are not trying to promote their own reputation would be like a little footnote. Because, because after all, uh, that's, why we, that's why the soul comes to this material world. Uh, Prabhupada said, often said, to lord it over. And what's the use of lording it over if no one knows you're the Lord, right? That would be really frustrating. <laughs> and therefore, uh, those who want to lord it over really are concerned to let everyone know they are the Lord. And of course, there's different strategies to lord it over. You can become a great artist, musician, politician, military hero. You can be very rich. You can even... Frankly, you know, one possible strategy would be to become a, a big leader of the Hare Krishna movement. Uh, I'm not saying that the big leaders of the Hare Krishna movement have uh, selfish desires. I'm just saying we have seen people become big leaders and then uh, sort of go down like a jumbo jet in flames. You know, it's just and, and so you see, like, how could this happen? How could one rise to an apparently high position? and then turn out to be not so advanced. And um, it's interesting because if you look at any society, any society has values, otherwise people wouldn't bother being a society, right? So, I mean, the very fact that people agree to live together, the fact that either explicitly or in, implicitly they, they, they agree to a social contract, which means there are certain benefits you get by living in a society, but you have to pay for those literally through taxes, and also you have to sacrifice a certain amount of your freedom by following laws. If you live, if you live out in the wilderness, there are no traffic lights, there are no taxes, and uh, you can do whatever you want. You can put clothes on or not. If you live way out, well, actually, since Australia is quite wilderness rich, let's um, <laughs> say if you go far into the outback, so you have complete freedom. No one can tell you anything. The only problem is uh, there are no comforts. You know, no running water, no electricity, uh, no one, no association. So if you live by yourself, you have all this freedom, but it's pretty miserable and lonely and uh, crude. It's a very crude life. So people choose to live in communities and cities in which you have less freedom, but a lot more facilities. And so that's the implicit social contract whenever you choose to live among other human beings. So the way societies and communities maintain themselves, their values, is by punishing uh, what they consider to be misbehavior and uh, rewarding uh, desirable behavior. The punishment takes place, by the way, in two ways. The punishment takes place either legally by actual legal punishments 
or if something is not legally forbidden, punishment may take place simply by uh, social uh, rejection. For example, it's not illegal to be obnoxious. But if someone is somehow inspired to be incredibly obnoxious, the result will be they will have very few friends. People will criticize them. People will not want to be with them. And uh, so sometimes society punishes simply outside the legal system, and sometimes there's actual legal punishment. But in either case, uh, there are negative consequences. And if you do something good, sometimes uh, society will legally reward you, such as by paying you, for example, by doing public service, and sometimes extra legally, simply by praising you. You have a great reputation. Uh, actually, there was a tragic case of a man who got both punishments. What did Rolf Harris? He was a big Australian hero, and then he committed a crime. Now he's in jail or something. So, so in any way, what I mean to say is that since living being, the, the reason that punishment and reward are effective is because by our very nature as souls, we seek pleasure and we avoid pain. And uh, therefore, the fact that, I mean, that's what pain means. Pain a priori, by definition, means something you don't want. And pleasure means, by definition, something that you do want. And therefore, every society uh, seeks to promote and uh, maintain its values by punishment and reward. And since we naturally gravitate to pleasure and we, we gravitate away from pain, uh, even in ISKCON, ISKCON is a society, it also must maintain its values and it must punish and reward uh, undesirable and desirable behavior. Otherwise, it would simply basically collapse as a society. And so there are legal punishments such as expulsion, suspension, or we, uh, somehow we always seem to use the Catholic word excommunication, which means no one's going to talk to you. So, and of course, it, and of course, there are non-legal punishments such as people don't like you, people criticize you, and so on and so forth. And there are rewards where you may actually be given all kinds of you know, facilities or people may praise you. And so what I mean to say is there are certain sociological principles which apply to every society, whether it's spiritual or material, just like for, because these are the laws of nature. For example, if a karmi, a jnani, a yogi, and a devotee all fall off the same high place, they will all fall at exactly the same speed according to the laws of physics. Anyway, so... Now, Lord Chaitanya warns in, in, in the Chaitanya Sarachamani, we have that, that one has to tend one's garden. Lord Chaitanya compares the heart to a garden, and um, you water your garden, but you're not only watering your plants, the ones you want, you're also watering the weeds. So you have to weed your garden, and uh, the weeds are material desires, of course, or which sometimes lead to misbehavior. So uh, weeds grow not only in individual hearts, they grow in community hearts and they, they grow, they can grow socially, there are social weeds. But in any case, if let's say someone is a member of ISKCON and they become attached to the rewards which ISKCON gives because any society 
to maintain its values must reward those who embody and support those values. It's just socially necessary. So someone may become attached to those rewards and want to avoid the punishments of being ostracized or whatever. And what can happen, the weed, this is what the weed is. That let's say I'm in a spiritual society and I am attached to the rewards and therefore I'm not actually cultivating real bhakti or devotion, I'm actually becoming more and more attached to the rewards. And that's why we see sometimes that if those rewards are suddenly withdrawn, uh, a person may withdraw. So if you ever wondered like, why does someone suddenly who appeared to be advanced suddenly give up the association of devotees, it's because they were running on reward fuel. And when that fuel was cut off, the, uh, the motor stopped. <laughs> Whereas if you are actually, if we're actually serving, because we really want to serve Prabhupada and Krishna, that's why we're doing this, then if some material rewards like fame or, uh, you know, access to life uh, terminating Mahaprasadam. <laughs> anyway, Krishna actually says in the Bhagavad Gita that food in the mode of goodness uh, is healthy. So I'll leave it to your discretion <laughs> to figure out how much Mahaprasadam is in the mode of goodness. I don't mean, this is not an attack on the Melbourne Temple. This is sort of, I'm more ambitious in my attack. Anyway, <laughs> so Krishna also says food in the mode of goodness is, um, it prolongs life. It doesn't curtail it. So judge for yourself. Anyway, so that's what happens. That's why people give up their devotional service. Not only leaders, but even, you know, even Vedic bottle washers or, just anyway, that's why someone gives up their service because it's kind of like, I didn't come to this movement to become humble or to be humble. Okay. Because that's basically what they're saying. I didn't join the Hare Krishna movement to be humbled. So, but if, if you're really here for the right reason, the fact that you may be misunderstood or uh, unfairly treated, a, someone who really has as the goal of their life uh, to go back to Krishna. They will take this obviously as Krishna's mercy. By the way, this does not mean that we should uh, knowingly expose ourselves to abuse. That's not what it means. So if someone's in an abusive relationship and they think this is Krishna's mercy, well, maybe, but it's also Krishna's mercy if you have enough common sense to get out of there. <laughs> So when we say that one should take one's troubles as Krishna's mercy, that means after and not before you've done everything humanly possible and reasonable and legal uh, to avoid it. So it's not that we go looking for trouble. For example, uh, in the early days of the Jesus movement, uh, there were some people obviously with somewhat abnormal psychologies who thought that to become Christ-like means to sort of martyr yourself. Because there was a time, actually there were many times in early Christian history, when uh, the Roman Empire tried to uh, stamp out Christianity. 
I'm not justifying the Roman atrocities, but uh, at least their concern in some ways was justified because if you look at the Roman Empire, it was, a, it was very modern in the sense that there was complete religious freedom, <laughs> complete in the sense that if you, were, if you didn't you know, do things which were destructive, there was religious freedom and there was a type of religious syncretism which goes all the way back to Alexander the Great and even earlier than Alexander, which is the well-known idea there's one God who's being worshiped in different ways by different people. And that allowed everyone to live together as civilized human beings. In fact, you find the same statement much earlier than the Greeks in the Rig Veda, where it said, Eko sad bahuda, uh, what's that? Vibida. You have to get the verb, it's something like hutam. Yeah, admit that uh, there's one absolute, but uh, people speak about that absolute in many different ways. So, um, so the Middle East, you could say because of geographical, meteorological even conditions, because much of it was very dry, and so it was hard to have large-scale societies. It was a very tribal society. Egypt, of course, had the Nile. This is almost Marxist, right? Economic conditions, the means of production determine political and social structures. Anyway, Marx is a good historian, just a really bad prophet. So, <laughs> so the idea, because they had the Nile, therefore they can have large-scale settled communities, same thing, the Tigris and Euphrates. You can have, you know, the great agrarian revolution, large societies, and anyway. So, but... Uh, if you look at Middle Eastern religions that uh, came from nomadic peoples, uh, they tended to be very tribal because the people themselves were tribal. And they imposed this tribal sociology, this tribal psychology on their religion. So my God can beat up your God, basically. And uh, we have to make a very key distinction here between tribal monotheism and philosophical monotheism. In the Indo-European world, certainly in India, and even in the Greco-Roman world, uh, you found philosophical monotheism because philosophical concepts can be shared. For example, the philosophical concept of monotheism can be shared. Many people in different cultures can be mono philosophical monotheists, but if your monotheism is based on a certain historical event, such as God appeared to our tribe and saved us in a certain way, then uh, historical events, by definition, are unique. Historical events only occur one time, and therefore it's not, it's not possible that your unique historical event, that a prophet came, a son of God came, or God appeared in some way, that unique historical event is not shared by other religions that have their own unique historical event. So people who are pre-philosophical, People, people who are simply not capable of being seriously philosophical, not fanatical, they make unique historical claims, and therefore one religion, you know, they think they have the only religion, all this nonsense. Whereas when you have, and you get tribal monotheism, but when you have philosophical monotheism, uh, philosophical categories and concepts can be widely shared across historical communities, and therefore people are more sane. And so anyway, because uh, Christians were persecuted, I'm not justifying the persecution. One of the motives was many intelligent people thought they were destroying civilization 
by introducing fanaticism, religious fanaticism, there was some truth in that. Although again, I'm not justifying the persecution. And therefore, uh, they were persecuted and some Christians trying to be Christ-like, turned themselves into the Roman authorities. Like, uh, hey, you know, why not crucify me? And um, because then they would be Christ-like. This, Krishna says, austerities, austerities which harm the body are in the mode of ignorance. So that's the point I, I wanted to make. And then getting back to ISKCON, the logical point here is that you should take suffering as Krishna's mercy, but don't go looking for trouble. There's enough trouble that will come to you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, Kunti Devi says, as a pure devotee, let my, let my sufferings come again and again so that I'll remember you. She's a pure devotee. So if you were on the spiritual level of Kunti, you can also pray like that. If you're not exactly on the spiritual level of Kunti, uh, that may not be your best prayer. <laughs> and we should certainly should not use this principle to justify uh, remaining in an abusive situation. So, uh, anyway, we've explained a few points. We kind of went to different places here. Any questions on all these points? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dushpurena, which is Dushpura. Uh, just like, you know, Purna means full, like uh, Purnima, full moon, which I'm, Western devotees have a very charming way of pronouncing that, Purnim. It's funny, there are three vowels in the, in the word Purnima, and Western devotees manage to get all three of them wrong. <laughs> So if you're going to mispronounce Sanskrit, do it in style. <laughs> anyway, so Purnima actually means full in the sense of full moon. Ma, of course, just a abbreviation for mas, which means a moon. And um, and on Purnamadak, this world is full. So uh, when Krishna says Dushpuram, that our selfish desires are Dushpuram, it, 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 uh, Pura means in the sense of like fulfilling. Right, like full, fulfilled. And so these desires are very hard to fulfill, very hard to satisfy. And they're like fire. If you try to appease fire by feeding it, we know the fire gets stronger. So it's a great analogy. So basically, when we cultivate uh, unethical desires, stealing is unethical, right? And so basically, when we're not engaged in service to God, Krishna, Everything else we do is more or less shoplifting. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, we just want to say, and actually, Krishna says him, says this himself. One who enjoys all the gifts of this world without offering them back to their source is nothing but a thief. Stainaeva. So. Just, just like people are punished when they steal. So if we, now someone can say, well, I don't know there's a God, so therefore I shouldn't be punished for trying to enjoy this world. Bad argument. <laughs> because someone who does not know there's a God is simply not doing due diligence. Even if you don't know there's a God in the sense of the God of religion, any moron, which of course, actually some of the great, philosophers and scientists of our time are not even up to that stage of any moron. But any fool can understand, any fool can, I don't mean all scientists and all philosophers, just the ones who are sort of willfully stupid and look at the practically infinitely ingenious and artistic design of the universe and conclude no one made it. That's sort of like willful stupidity. You can say, well, it's our free idea, yes. People will, you know, freely do all kinds of crazy things. If you're walking down the road and you bump into some fantastic next-gen supercomputer and you say, where did this come from? Well, the wind blew, there was some seismic activity, it rained sometimes, and now we have the next-generation supercomputer. The fact that people with college degrees could actually believe this. <laughs> cannot be, frankly, it cannot be rationally explained. It's almost, it's practically inconceivable that anyone could actually believe that. And therefore, the only explanation that people can actually believe this, not only that, they believe this because they're determined to prove that they will die. In other words, if there's an eternal soul, they won't die. If they're, if they're just, if they are their body, which is an absurd conclusion for various philosophical reasons. Uh, if they are their body, then they will die forever and lose everything 
that could possibly be of value to them forever. And so they're fighting, arguing, debating, trying to establish the point that they will die forever. So not only is it rationally absurd to say that no one designed the world, it's infinitely against their own self-interest. And so how can you explain this? I mean, the only, I've thought of, the only explanation I can come up with is Maya. The Lord's illusory energy. So someone there, a question back there? Um, thank you, Murat. Uh, you explained the, um, the significance of the week. The, yes. The vast and the negative. We also find uh, the nature of the world do use what? Yeah, which can mean either dirty fighter, dirty yodana, <laughs> or it can also mean hard to fight with. Oh, vidur can mean, well, vidur is actually not the prefix v, it's, it's from the root vid, to know. It's a wise person. By the way, we still have that in English, in many European languages. And um, there's actually solid phonetic evidence, even from Panini in Sanskrit grammar, that V was often pronounced as W, actually, as Sanskrit V. And we, you still have that, like swa, swayam, swarad, isn't it? So it's, it's, even in India, it's often pronounced as W. I won't go into all the phonetic evidence that it was actually a W, but, but if you do take it as a W, then uh, the Sanskrit root, Bit is actually wit, which we still have in English. Wit. And also from Veda, you have the Latin verb, Latin and Italian verb to see. And Krishna often in the Gita describes knowing as seeing. The verb is actually vedere. Uh, you actually have, I saw a place name in Sydney, Belvedere. <laughs> actually, Belvedere is just belvedere, like seeing something beautiful. So uh, even in, in street names in Sydney, you see the influence of the Hare Krishna movement. Anyway, <laughs> so the, the Italian or Latin, vedere, to see, English words like video or vision, or the German verb to know, which is wissen, and uh, so on and so forth. Even ver, the Latin verb vedere to see, Spanish ver, French voir. So you, it's all this Indo-European root to know, to see. So that's vidura. Bibishana, B means uh, fear. And Bibishana means like holy terror. It's, um, <laughs> it's sort of a, what's called an intensive. There's a Sanskrit verb form which you intensify the meaning by duplicating the, the root. So B is to fear, BP. BP Shana means like really frightening. So thank you all very much. Uh, oh, one more. And then tonight I have to uh, do it again. Overtime, right? <laughs> my, my speaking fees go up exponentially when I speak twice in the same day. Yes? Thank you, Marat, for the brilliant class. Marat, you spoke about societies and values and how reward and punishment are associated and that's how people follow them or repel certain behaviors. So my understanding is that 
your values are based on your knowledge, which is which is a combination of both objective knowledge and, and a subjective experience with it. That's how people are. We think these are leaders because our set of values, our set of knowledge about a certain person is, oh, he's a greatly advanced spiritual person. Right. Actually, you brought up a very good point. And it, I should say also, you reminded me that, I should say also that when one is actually Krishna conscious, one is not, um, let's say, serving Krishna to get the rewards. So at a certain stage, so I, I, sh I probably should have made that more clear, that a person may be motivated by that. And people who are motivated like by that are very um, unstable because if the rewards are cut off, their Krishna consciousness suddenly dries up. But if someone is a real leader, really Krishna conscious, which means in touch with their soul, then they're attached to the reward of pleasing Krishna and knowing in their heart, because that's love. Just like if you're a mother or father, if you know that your ch child is happy and safe, that makes you happy. And so if someone is, has real bhakti, then they're, and I actually did mention that, I want to give full credit to myself, but I, <laughs> I did mention that. So, I mean, in fact, the more one is Krishna conscious, the more one's motivation is spiritual. It's simply Krishna's pleasure. So, uh, thank you all very much. And, uh, oh, last one back there. Uh, you explained about mispronunciation and various signs which changes the meaning of the word altogether. Like in the Hare Krishna mantra, we have only three words. When you say Krishna to Krishna, it changes the name from Krishna to Draupadi. So the question is, if we chant Hare to Hare or Ram to Ramo, What's the meaning of the mispronunciation? Probably your next life you will become a frog. <laughs> <laughs> or another possibility is that Krishna doesn't, you know, he just smiles and accepts it. Yeah. I mean, after all, if you think when you have a child and as the child is growing, it takes a few years before the child can actually say, you know, like mommy or mom or something correctly. And all kinds of unusual things come out in the beginning. <laughs> But the, the mother is, it's not like, you know, the little baby child is crying for the mother. The mother says, I'm sorry, you didn't pronounce my name properly. <laughs> and therefore, no, I will not feed you.